Digital Drift, episode 12, recorded Wednesday, 9th of April, 2014. Spider-Man 3. I'm going to ask MJ to marry me. A man has to put his wife before himself. Can you do that, Peter? Yeah, I think I can. We have some new information. This is your uncle's actual killer. We lost his trail two days ago. This man killed my uncle, and he's still out there. Everybody needs help sometimes, Peter. Even Spider-Man. Revenge is like a poison. It can take us over. And before you know it, it can turn you into something ugly. This suit. Where'd this come from? The power. It feels good. But you lose yourself to it. Spidey, love the new outfit. Remember Ben Parker? What does it matter to you anyway? Everything. Do you want to push me away? Why would I want to push you away? I love you. You knew this was coming, Pete. We have to forgive each other, or everything we ever were will mean nothing. I need your help. I have to stop it. This could be the end of Spider-Man. Deep discussion and entertaining analysis of movies, games, and media culture. Welcome to the Digital Drift. Welcome back to the third of the Spider-Man reviews. This time it's 2007 Spider-Man 3. This was originally hotly anticipated following Spider-Man 2 three years earlier. It was a major summer event, and in fact, note of that is made throughout the movie Knocked Up, which James Franco cameoed in. Everybody was just naturally assumed to want to see it. It was hard to imagine what a crushing disappointment this would turn out to be. Nobody wanted to believe it was a bad film, and it took $890 million at the box office when audiences refused to believe the early negative press and word of mouth. There are, in fact, uncanny similarities with the development of the first three X-Men films. The first establishing the world in strong fashion and proving surprisingly popular and lucrative, especially in the years afterwards on DVD. The second elaborating and evolving the initial premise, delivering on the promise and gaining even more approval and profit. The third, a compromised, bloated mess, released to insane and entirely undeserving box office, and looked back on, in retrospect, as a mountain of poor decisions, executive meddling, and ill-conceived nonsense that sours the memory of the first two. There are some who would say the same of Superman, Alien, Terminator, The Godfather, 
Star Wars and the Dark Knight trilogy. And a few who tend to resort to pretending the disappointing films simply don't exist. Either way, be cautious of film number threes. I just did some checking. Uh, the original Spider-Man made $821 million for $140 million investment. And uh, Spider-Man 2 made $783 million, which is less, for a $200 million investment. So technically, 2 was less successful. Which is a shame, because it's better. Notably, the final screenplay for the first was written by David Coep and the second by Alvin Sargent. Both maintained a strong vision for who Peter was and where he was going. This third one is written by Sargent again, along with Sam Raimi himself and his brother Ivan. The story is, at its core, about Peter coming to terms with the fact that while he has pledged to protect ordinary people, he is not above them. He is just as flawed and prone to weakness, anger, selfishness and arrogance. And these easily cartoonishly labelled criminals he beats to a pulp in his quest to prevent their harming of others are in fact human too. Unfortunately, this fairly profound theme was buried beneath several subplots and visually arresting, barely realised characters that just plain didn't need to be there. Here's a bullet-pointed list of what a tangled web of threads this film contains. Now, this may sound like a synopsis, but it works best as a clear statement of how overstuffed and unbalanced this whole production was and how that ultimately badly hurt the story that needed to be told. So thread number one, New York now loves Spider-Man. They throw him a parade and give him the key to the city. A pretty girl kisses him. Thread number two, Mary Jane is unappreciated in her line of work and is fired, secretly falling into depression. Peter is unable to appreciate her issues without filtering them through his own. When she sees him as Spider-Man publicly kissing a girl upside down in the same manner he first kissed her, she takes great offence and breaks up with him, seeking comfort in the company of their old friend Harry Osborne. After giving her a degree of affection, Harry then strangles her in her apartment and orders her to break up with Peter for good. Peter then shows up at her place of work and makes a total prat of himself, embarrassing her. He grapples with a bouncer and hits her. She is then kidnapped by a crazy man in a taxi who hangs her off a building. Harry turns up again and is killed. After Harry's funeral, Peter apologises for being such a dick. Thread number three. Harry Osborne has been plotting his revenge on Peter for the apparent murder of his father, whom he now knows to be the Green Goblin, but ignores the well-documented public crimes of... He attacks Peter in the street in a new goblin costume, and in doing so, he accidentally hits his head, bringing on amnesia and forgetting all of the above. He spends some time with MJ, but then without warning gets his memories back and remembers he hates Peter and Spider-Man. He executes an elaborate plot to destroy Peter emotionally, involving Mary Jane, whom he strangles. Peter comes to his apartment and they fight viciously. Harry is horribly scarred by an exploding grenade and left for dead by Peter ultimately admitting defeat. Peter comes to him and asks him to help save Mary Jane from a sand cloud and an alien. He declines because he still hates Peter. 
His butler then tells him three-year-old information kept a closely guarded secret whereby his father was killed by his extending blades on the front of his own glider and that Harry's hatred for Spider-Man is thus misplaced. He heads out on his flying snowboard, helps save MJ and sacrifices his life for his friends. Thread number four. An escaped convict seeks money to help his sick daughter. He is turned into a pile of sentient sand, attempts to rob an armoured car and grapples with Spider-Man, escaping without the money. He hides in a wet sewer and Spider-Man finds and attacks him, making him very wet in the process. He dries off and meets an alien, then goes to a building site and holds back the police while the alien hangs a screaming girl above the street. Spider-Man arrives with his friend, a millionaire on a flying snowboard, There is a big fight and Spider-Man is revealed to be Peter Parker, the nephew of a man the convict was sent to jail for killing. Parker forgives him and the convict turns into sand and flies away. Thread number five. Peter is having a great time balancing being Spider-Man with doing well at college and having a steady girlfriend. He prepares to propose to this girl, but she breaks up with him before he can. He and his aunt are called to a police station and told about the real killer of Uncle Ben. Peter is consumed with murderous rage and lust for vengeance. Now, I've made the next one thread number six because it's actually mostly unrelated. Number six. An alien lands on Earth and hides in Peter's backpack. It latches onto Peter and turns him into a black-suited angry vigilante. This symbiotic organism exacerbates his worst emotional responses. He dresses uncharacteristically in black, treats his colleagues, boss, landlord and neighbours like shit, struts down the street gesticulating at strangers and dancing. He takes a pretty model physicist friend to the jazz club where his girlfriend works and embarrasses her mid-song with his appalling dance routine. He then fights with a bouncer and accidentally hits his ex, reeling back from the results of his terrible behaviour. Then he goes to a church tower and the bell ringing causes the alien suit to separate from his body, freeing him and allowing him to return to and apologise to his ex, who accepts his apparent resolve to be less of a dick. Thread number seven. Eddie Brock goes on a date with a model who specialises in physics. He photographs her hanging from a girder 50 stories above the street onto which she is about to plummet to her death. Spider-Man appears and saves her, and Eddie decides he is going to make money photographing the vigilante. He is unable to do this successfully, so fakes pictures instead. A rival photographer exposes his forgery and gets him fired from the job he didn't earn. Eddie goes to church and asks God himself to murder this rival photographer. An alien falls on him from the bell tower and forms a symbiotic relationship with him. From these exacerbated negative behavioural patterns, Eddie decides he likes being bad and that it makes him happy. He also grows very pointed teeth and appears much like Spider-Man himself for no given reason. He teams up with a man who can turn into sand kidnaps a girl and hangs her screaming above a street, writing an elaborate invitation to Spider-Man in webbing that the news crew films. 
Spider-Man shows up and hits a lot of pipes near Eddie, which separates him from the alien. Spider-Man blows up the alien with a grenade, but Eddie throws himself into the inferno, apparently unable to give up such incredible power. Thread number... Eight. Eight. May Parker is visited by her nephew, Peter. He expresses an interest in proposing to his girlfriend. She tells him a story about how her dead husband first proposed to her and gives him her engagement ring. Some months later, she takes the long trip across New York to the centre of Manhattan and meets her nephew in his apartment. May asks if he has yet proposed. He tells her things went wrong and he hurt his girlfriend. She tells him he needs to forgive himself and goes home, having stayed there for 90 seconds. There's something wild about you, child, that's so contagious. Let's be outrageous. Thread number nine. Dr. Kurt Connors doesn't like only having one arm. He keeps this a secret. He is impressed with the progress of one of his students who last year was very lazy, tardy and underachieving. This student brings him an astonishing alien organism. He analyzes it and tells the student not to mess around with it in case it bonds with him in some kind of symbiotic relationship. He never hears from the boy again. Although a black alien creature clearly resembling this organism wreaks havoc in downtown New York. Thread number 10. Thread number 10. Gwen Stacy goes for coffee with a photographer. He photographs her hanging from a building and chats with her father. He kisses Spider-Man. She kisses Spider-Man. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Now that would have been an interesting movie. It would would have explained a lot about Eddie as well. Hmm. She kisses Spider-Man while presenting him with the key to the city. She meets her school friend Peter in a restaurant and asks him for a picture of that event. She goes on a date with Peter to a jazz club. He dances all over the place and embraces her in front of his ex. She apologises to the other woman for her unwitting part in this abysmal behaviour and leaves. The end. Now, obviously, we went over much of the similar ground there, but laying it out like that shows how disjointed all of these um, uh, story threads are and all of these character arcs. Um, I'm, I'm approaching this simply because I'm now having to write this stuff out myself for the uh, first book, the first proper book that I'm doing. Um, and I'm going, right, so this character can't just show up for no reason. They have to be here for a reason that they have to actually have gone on a journey and do something. Um and there has to be meaning to them being in the story. Now, not everyone has to have meaning, but uh, the, what is put together eventually has to gel. It has to feel coherent. This actually feels more like the Star Wars prequels in that it doesn't seem really apparent what's actually going on. And the core of it is only one aspect of what we're seeing. If you ask the average person on the street, uh, what what is Spider-Man 3 about? They'd probably say... Um, it's about two hours and 20 minutes. Or they would uh, say it's about Spider-Man gets the black costume and acts like a dick. That that would be what most people take away from this one, is the black costume is making him behave like a dick, and that's what we know of Spider-Man. But then you say the average person on the street, would they even know to refer to it as the black costume? 
Or would it simply be, for some strange reason, Spider-Man starts dressing in black? I think a lot of people saw the uh, uh, the 90s Spider-Man cartoon, so that's kind of the, the Venom black suit is kind of in the public conscience. I mean, they, they put oh. Venom in there just because of that. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. But what do you think the average person... What, what do you think that your, the average person you work, you work with would say? Not the ones who really like movies, the ones who are just normal. <laughs> <laughs> normal is a state of mind. Um, what would they say? I, don't, I could ring one of them and ask them. Um, I mean, we're asking people asked to speculate about it. It's really hard to pin down what people... I think people don't tend to think too hard about what a movie's really about. They just talk, talk about... When you ask them about it, they go, yeah, it was good, or no, it was rubbish. I think... Most of them would probably be hard-pressed to come up with anything more in-depth than it was about Spider-Man. It's about nothing consistent. That's the problem. I, there are there are slices of this film that I actually thought, this looks like they've cut it out of a better script and pasted it in. Mm. Those bits weren't anchored to anything. They didn't all seem to be attached properly. The webbing that was holding them all together was somewhat frayed. Over an hour and it's starting to decay. Mm. Um, there's obvious definite editing issues with um, trying to get all of these elements together. When when the Sandman first turns up, that's when it really sticks out because it's uh, his scenes are suddenly in there and at such odds with Peter in the hospital trying to deal with Harry. I do wonder, actually, if, having said how many people were at work on the script, um, and I know that... They did they it like Chinese whispers all that time. Well, um, I was thinking more, basically, they said, right, Sam, you've got this plot line to work on. You have this plot line to work on, and you have this plot line to work on. Go away. Do not consult with one another in any way, shape, or form. And then in two weeks' time, we're all going to come back here, cut our scripts up into paragraph-sized segments, and then consequences them. There's very little, this happens because of this, in a way that relates to the rest of the movie. Absolutely. All of these threads that we just went through tend to be sort of like everything's consequences in there and very little of it really sort of is that they're not interlinked in quite no. such a way. And, and sometimes, or, or sometimes they are interlinked in ways that seem ridiculously forced or contrived. Like for example, the, um, we'll probably go into this in a bit more depth later, but there is a scene in which um, Mary Jane and Peter have what is possibly the most honest conversation of their life. But the reason it's happening is because, effectively, Harry is standing behind her with a gun. Mm. He's making her be honest, which is ironic because it seems like an elaborate plot to sew Peter a web of lies that will confuse him. And instead, it's actually just getting MJ to tell him the truth. Yeah. Which would, in the right hands and handled properly, uh, be really intriguing. But it doesn't really go anywhere. Because the direct knock-on result of that is Peter comes into her jazz club and dances like a shithead. Anyway, uh, the films are now definitely episodic. Do you think the uh, Green Goblin was uh, the uh, villain in the first one and had a unspoken goal, something to do with the city and maybe getting Spider-Man to join him, but not really? Dr. Octopus had a very clear goal of... Um, 
Well, the, the, the end goal was make the machine and get it to work this time. The Just pop me- it on your wrist. The means involved stealing big bags of coins and yes. somehow getting uh, machinery through that. In this, you've got the Sandman who wants to get money for his kid. You've got Venom, when he eventually turns up, wants to destroy Spider-Man. Hmm. Uh, Harry, who wants to destroy Spider-Man slash Peter. But in a way that sort of veers back and forth... Um, when he finally really gets his uh, his hate on for Peter, at the beginning, when he attacks Peter uh, as a goblin, it seems like he straight out wants to kill him. He's beaten the living shit out of him. He wants to destroy him. Then later on, he wants to attack his heart. And then when they actually fight, he's like, I'm going to kick your ass. And it's like, wow, his threat is actually diminishing as, as, as time goes on. It, it almost becomes like... He's more and more aware of uh, of how what little evidence he has against Spider-Man for any of his woes. But again, this seems more like complications and not really wanting Harry to be totally reprehensible. If I may, sir, I've seen things in this house I've never spoken of. What are you trying to tell me? The night your father died, I, I cleaned his wound. The blade that pierced his body came from his glider. And? Well, well, I mean, he probably killed himself with it. What, he stabbed himself? Possibly. You know how hard it is to maneuver that thing? It weighs like 170 pounds. What are you saying? I know you're trying to defend your father's honor, but there is no question that he died by his own hand. His own hand? Suicide, sir, obviously. You're saying he impaled himself on purpose? I had a fight with Spider-Man two days ago in which he threw my glider at me. Then he hurled a fragmentation grenade in my face and left me for dead. I mean, sorry to judge a man by his actions, but your butler CSI proves nothing. Well, supposing it was an accident or something. I mean, Spider-Man really does seem to be rather a nice fellow. It would be very out of character, and your father was on that news footage disintegrating the board members of Oscorp at the parade. You were there, sir. Yes, I was there. I nearly died. And throwing that cable car full of children and that young lady friend of yours off the George Washington Bridge. I mean, it's not exactly rocket science, if I may say so, sir. No, you may not say. The man was clearly a murderous nutter, sir. I'm frankly surprised you still can't see it. Okay, maybe he was crazy. I mean, that footage is pretty incriminating. But you tell me this now, after three goddamn years? Why don't you tell me before? It was just invigorating to see you enthused about something for the change. I've spent all this time hating Spider-Man for no reason. My face now looks like someone tried to put out a forest fire with a screwdriver. Oh, not at all, sir. You can still turn heads. This is not appropriate behavior for a butler! I'm sorry, sir. I loved your father. As I've loved you, Harry. As your friends love you. You're an asshole, Bernard. Very good, sir. Shall I fetch your flying snowboard? Well, obviously. Harry, Mallory, Osborne, where are you going? I'm going out, Mother. To see those no-account friends of yours, no doubt. You want me to bring you back some more vodka? Magnum Grey Goose. That's like the tenth most expensive vodka in the world. It's like 800 bucks a bottle. And some oysters. Bernard and I are celebrating tonight, if you know what I mean. I certainly do. Oh, God. Laying it out like that, I, I am even more convinced now that they had all three scriptwriters go away and write a separate story. Mm. Um, a villain each, basically. Yeah. All the, all the storyline involving MJ. I, I find it very hard to believe that one person wrote Venom. 
Absolutely. On more than a postage stamp. <laughs> yeah, fair point. He's not even but, named. But all the um, all the stuff involving MJ and the, the relationship breakdown ties in brilliantly with uh, a plot line that involves Harry uh, deteriorating into the Green Goblin and trying to take revenge on Peter. That's a film. If you do it properly, that's a film. And that would have been quite a satisfactory rounding off to the trilogy, frankly. But they decided, in their wisdom, that they wanted to shoehorn Venom in somehow um, and then incorporate uh, Gwen Stacy into the Eddie Brock line. Well, yeah. Um, but th- he's the one who really isn't necessary. Yeah. If you, were, if you were going to improve it by taking one thing out, and I personally think that it would be better if you just got rid of Sandman and Venom and Gwen and Eddie and just focused on Harry, MJ and, and Peter. especially Captain Stacy. <sighs> yeah. Um, but the ironic thing would be then, you lose some of the best bits of the movie. Thomas Hayden Church's performance is actually really quite good. Yes, it is. It's just not for this film. Originally, no. this was actually going to be two films. Should have been three. No, I, I don't really. Think you don't think so. they would have got three, three uh, films with the material? I don't think Sandman himself, as he is as a character, mm-hmm. uh, can support an entire movie. He's very much like Electro, in, in that Electro needs somebody else to really be pointing him in, in one particular direction. Yeah, that's fair. And actually, I suppose he does kind of bounce off Venom quite well in the sense that... Um, uh, Marco's motivation is to do with his responsibility or what he perceives to be his responsibilities as a father, mm. his failings as a man and his attempt to um, uh, apologise and, and compensate for those failings and Eddie who basically isn't getting his love. He's not getting the respect he thinks he deserves he's not getting the appreciation he thinks he's worth and when it's all taken away from him and deservedly so, uh, he has a three year old tantrum shit fit on the floor Yeah. Really when we say Venom uh, he's never named as Venom he's just Eddie Brock briefly in a symbiotic space suit mm, yeah. and in fact the suit isn't emphasised enough when he's wearing it because it keeps peeling back so that we can see Eddie's face yeah um, so yeah it's very villain of the week there was a brief while after this in fact several years actually now that I think about it when they were going Spider-Man 4 anyone? anyone Spider-Man 4? the lizard? how about Morbius? we haven't done Morbius yet and they were just you know there was going to be the vulture they were going to get Ben Kingsley to be the vulture and then it was going to be Anne Hathaway as Felicia Hardy good god was this before or after? before Oh, and, so it wasn't uh, that somebody went, oh, she looks really awesome in ears. No, um, the, yeah, the idea was that uh, she was going to be uh, Felicia Hardy for a long while and then finally take on her proper uh, comic book guys as the Voltress. Uh-huh. Beg pardon? Sorry, not, sorry. She should be Black Cat, folks. And uh, then later on, after <laughs> Catwoman appeared in uh, the Dark Knight Rises, Sam Raimi said, oh, yeah, she was going to be... She was going to be Voltress and then maybe Black Cat after, like, when we did Spider-Man 6. Uh, it, I just, I am so, so grateful looking at what they were doing with this fucking Villain of the Week bullshit that they rebooted. What, whether people liked Amazing or not, this needed to end here. If this is what they were doing with it. It's got a soap opera structure. Like I said, so many threads running through it. It's like um, you, you go for your average weekly soap opera. Well, sorry, is, is, they're daily, aren't they? 
the whole point of soap so, operas is if they just go on and on and on every day a new episode they just churn them out mm-hmm. uh, and you jump back and forth between different families and different characters and that's what this felt like it's got that soap opera structure and of course the amnesia thing is one of those brilliantly shitty soap opera narrative contrivances that allows a character who's previously done a very strongly motivated things to forget those motivations and they can rewrite the character etch a sketch yeah and yet that's some of the best Harry stuff in the entire trilogy. Mm, that yeah. is true. Um, it doesn't help, and you, you said that this was obviously a, a tiny element of it, but um, that they have the same theme tune for every single film. Yeah. It just feels like... I mean, if they got to Spider-Man 4 and it was... Da, 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 apparently Danny Elfman had a really terrible time for Spider-Man 2 and didn't come back for Spider-Man 3 as a result of it. He wasn't allowed to really elaborate on his theme. That's why the Spider-Man 2 stuff sounds all very, very similar to Spider-Man 1. And he just sort of added a few, couple of new themes like the Doctor Octopus thing. They would have lent on it because it's, it was a huge thing and a huge deal and they made enough money from 3. They, didn't, they wouldn't want to change the formula. That's the thing. If we keep validating their shitty behavior, they'll keep doing it. And you know, we, we paid for this. I, I, no, did we? I think this was a Cineworld, wasn't it? So we technically didn't pay for Spider-Man 3. But you know, 780 odd million dollars worth of people did. I think even if you have a Cineworld card, it still counts as mm. a portion of box office. This still isn't, you know, hugely hated and reviled. It's a, it's a mess, but it's not a, a detestable film. It's only got like 63% freshness, which is a big drop off from the high, the 90s, which the first two were at. I but, will. S- oh. But when people were saying it's not as good as the first two, that was still good enough that people went to go and see it anyway. Yeah. I will say this, actually. Although. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's not as bad as I remember it being. It is. In fact, in certain places it's worse. But there were more good bits than I remembered there being. Like I said, Thomas Hayden Church, if we can talk about him as Sandman briefly here at the beginning. We've, again, divided up uh, our notes into characters because it's easier that way. The bits where it's all visual storytelling and you have to just tell uh, how he's feeling by looking at his face. He feels sad. He sells it in a really moving way. And you've got that lovely bit of uh, Sandman music, so when he sort of picks himself and pulls himself back together as uh, a man made of sand and then tries desperately to sort of... It's a nice allegory. I'm not sure if it was intentional or not for somebody coming out of prison and trying to pull the the, uh, elements of their life back together. Mm, I thought that. It it kind of epitomises him as this drifter who doesn't really have a core. He doesn't have a base. He's, you know, every time he tries to grab hold of anything, it slips through his fingers, literally. his daughter's got but his decision immediately after getting the sand powers is I must only use these powers to rob banks Mm. and again he does exactly the same as Dr. Octopus and only in this case the bank is not stationary so he's robbing giant bags of cash instead 
I think one of the things that frustrated me the most about his character was in the introduction. You've got this brilliant segment where, like you said, they give it over totally to the visual storytelling. He climbs in through the window. You can see immediately what the situation is. Um, Well, to a start with, you're like, oh, my God, he's going to hurt that poor little girl. No, wait a second. This is only a PG-13. Yeah, that's not going to happen. You know, but he's got the letters and you can see very clearly who he is, who she is. It's not done in a particularly um, over-the-top way. Rubbing it in, yeah. He puts them under a pillow. He gets up. He goes into the kitchen. His wife walks in and the exposition exposition kicks in. But Flint, you've just broken out of prison, and there was that man that you killed, and oh, and it's like, oh, for goodness sake, if if not for her coming in at that point, this whole thing would have been brilliant. But um, it's it's like, it's basically like saying we've set up this marvelously implied visual set of information for you. But we don't uh, trust you not no, to be stupid. We don't trust you not to get anything else, so we're just going to tell you. Twice. Oh, and we both noticed at exactly the same time, and I don't know why we didn't before, Sandman's daughter is BB from Kill Bill. And that's pretty much it for him, really. He's, he reappears throughout the movie repeatedly, but he tends to be in combat with Spider-Man at the very end. He tells Peter that he didn't mean to, and it was all an accident, and he feels terrible about it. And it's regret, one of the things that I love seeing on film explored. And uh, Peter forgives him, and he flies away. For some reason, I always thought that he, he dissipates and allows himself to just, like disappear into the cosmos but it's it's immediately obvious he actually he's the only villain who gets to survive and actually flies away i don't know why i thought he died at the end but uh, oh i did i didn't think he i thought he just kind of let himself go and no that's how he travels around the city so it because it's uh, animated in exactly the same way i didn't say anything but lyra said he's going to go and see his daughter now isn't he and i said probably yeah so yeah he he gets to go off and do his own thing and uh, forgiveness and uh, it's it's more about what that achieves for both the person who uh, committed the crime and for the person doing the forgiving. Mm, yeah, he's also um, a participant in one of the the fatal lines in um, a, a, a sci-fi comic book action movie when. Oh, the what is it? The air density in the just machine increased. Has just changed. Do you want to stop the? Stop, uh, just ignore it. Please. Do you want to stop the experiment because it would really fuck up our readings if there's a living organism on this sand. No. Do you know how long it takes us to turn these things back on? Six minutes. I've got a potato on in the microwave. <laughs> I'm hungry. Go. Guys, this is science. You check when yeah. you think something's flown into your Press the button. Wait a second. What is this scientific experiment? It's to blow sand around. Okay, commence the blowing sand around. Let's hope nobody's in there. And now a vertical line to indicate the one. It, anyway. That's, it's very contrived. This has to happen so we can have Sandman. Hmm. The first half hour of this movie is actually pretty competent. It, can, it comprises some good stuff, which we're going to talk about later. But it's almost exactly the 30-minute mark that it suddenly turns to shit and then only recovers for a few brief squeaks between then and the end. That's a lot of the movie that sucks. But it's enough of the movie that every time you watch it again, you think, was I too hard on this? And then, no. No, I, I wasn't too hard. I remember now why this is rubbish. Um... 
it's around about the time, almost exactly to the moment, when MJ comes in and says, I got a bad review. And uh, that whole sequence, which we'll talk about when we discuss Peter and MJ, and then cuts immediately to Gwen. Like, within seconds, Gwen's hanging off a building uh, and screaming. They, They created this brand new character to bring her in from the comics... And she's hanging from a girder screaming exactly the same as Gwen. You just dye her hair red and make MJ a model because she is. And that's MJ hanging out of that thing. And that doesn't change anything. Spider-Man saves woman. Uh, Uh, Spider-Man saves supermodel astrophysicist. Yeah. (laughs) With the bikini. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's the thing. Sam Raimi was told... Make her Gwen Stacy, that will give a character already established in the comics to this other girl you want. They thought of the girl first, and then they made her Gwen Stacy. They didn't think of the girl very hard. No, they didn't. There's not very much to her, really. I mean, bless her, Bryce Dallas Howard does the best she can with what she's got. But she comes. She's one of the few people who comes away from the movie with her soul intact. You know, when after Peter behaves like such, a, such an idiot at the uh, club, she seems genuinely apologetic, and her delivery is excellent. When she looks at MJ and she uh, realizes that she's been she's been used, MJ's been used, Peter's being a shit. She wants no more of this, but at the same time, her heart goes out to MJ, which is rare. That is nice, actually, not to have the uh, the girls cat fighting over him, mm. which wouldn't have been the case had Felicia Hardy been on the scene. Fair point. <laughs> For images of what this might look like, see The Dark Knight Rises. But yeah, yeah, Gwen's hardly in it, and, and when she is, she's nice, and that's about it. James Cromwell as Captain Stacy, however, is fucking terrible. Now, this is a guy who was in L.A. Confidential, one of my favourite movies of all time. He's excellent in that. And he's excellent in things like Babe and uh, The Green Mile. Um, but in this, he's not far from... Was he the one in Star Trek Insurrection? He was one of the Baku. Oh, no, no, actually, no. He was in Star Trek First Contact. He was the yes. guy they make First Contact with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my God, in this film, though, he's such a, a, a sixth leg on a chair. Like, he just doesn't need to be there. <laughs> the he, one that sticks out the side in case the chair falls over. And is made of Play-Doh. It's, he's <laughs> utterly useless. This is the point, and I mentioned this earlier, but, but it's the most sickening moment. Gwen's hanging out of a window that's just been destroyed by a girder. The, cr- the crane's out of control. This is, oh shit, this shit just got real time. Topher Grace turns up, and he's not even Eddie Brock at this point. He's just smart-ass Topher Grace. He's taking photos of this carnage going on. Mm. And, um, <laughs> and he's squinting up at Gwen and goes, yeah, I'm dating your daughter. That's her up there. And Captain Stacy looks up at her, and this is his daughter, his little girl that he has raised from a tiny, tiny little baby to who she is now, this wonderful heart. We know she turns out to be a wonderful, good-hearted person. There's nothing you couldn't like about Gwen Stacy. And he's looking up, and she's hanging by a fingernail from a girder, and he goes, oh, yeah, what's Gwen doing up there? You know what, sir? Fuck you. Fuck you. And whoever wrote that line, and whoever directed him at that point, fuck them. That is a that is the most pure, ridiculous. Let's not be all scared, folks. We all know Spider Man's going to come in and save her. If it was Dennis Leary, 
he would have been torn between his desperation to control the situation as a police sergeant and uh, having to try to direct people left, right and centre and having to try to focus on, on preventing the crane from hurting anybody else but at the same time desperately needing to save his little girl about to die and pinned because he's so far away from her and can't do anything about it but stare in horror. How dare you have him go, Oh, I wonder what she's doing up there in this film. Fucking broken from that moment onwards. Okay, Gwen, I've got a secret. It's my coffee. Oh my god, that's Gwen. What? What's she doing up there? I don't know, I just saw her last night. She said she had a modeling gig. Who are you? It's Brock, sir. Edward Brock Jr. I work at the Daily Bugle. And I'm dating your daughter. It could be interpreted, or I'm reaching wildly here, um, that basically New York has descended into this inability to look after itself because they're so convinced Spider-Man will save them all the time. Yeah, which uh, all equates to, don't think too much about it, it's a comic book, kids. Yeah, do you know what happens in comic books? Gwen Stacy... Dies, dies. after falling from a great height. Horribly. It was one of the most heartbreaking, tear-jerking moments ever in comic history, and it was permanent. Yeah. Do not fuck up Gwen Stacy hanging off a building and then say, don't think about it too much, it's just a comic book. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and guess that Sam Raimi and the other two scriptwriters have not read that one. Probably not. Maybe Alvin Sargent, who wrote Spider-Man 2, but I really don't think that Sam Raimi... Um, got particularly acquainted with the Gwen Stacy character before directing Bryce Dallas Howard. I'm not saying they screwed up the Gwen Stacy character. She could well have turned out to be a pretty accurate Gwen Stacy. And there's not, let's face it, this was written in the 70s, so there wasn't that much of a character there to begin with. But what's evolved over the years is that this was a very good person and she is instrumental in shaping Peter. Isn't so for she, God's sake, don't just give her the, the, the name and go, oh, dangle her out of a building. What the fuck ever. Isn't she like his nerdy friend, though, or is that purely the spectacular interpretation? Spectacular. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, other complete pointlessness moment of James Cromwell is where he turns up, gets Aunt May and Peter to come down to the station and goes, oh, we got some uh, new information that came to light about the guy who actually killed Uncle Ben. What the fuck? Okay, why are you telling us this now? Well, we didn't know. Okay, why, have you got him? Well, he's out there. Well, why are you telling us this now? Because it'll move the plot along, sort of. Tell us when you've caught him. When it's relevant. When you know he definitely did it. Is there a danger that this Flint Marco will hunt down an old woman and her nephew and murder them? No? Then it's not relevant. So, yeah, uh, Topher Grace has said he brock smug twat there's not much else to say he's hardly characterized at all i mean topher grace can pull off annoying and he, he just ramps it up in this and that's about it there's, there's not much more to him anything else anything on topher grace as eddie brock 
Um, the only thing I would say is that the um, the scene in which he is discovered to have faked the photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, see, the, 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 quite a lot of the the pieces in this film, to me, seem to have been approached from entirely the wrong angle. And that whole scene, it's kind of focused on the idea that um, uh, Peter has his new floppy fringe, um, and therefore you know he's being a bad guy. Um, and Eddie looks absolutely uh, terrified of the consequences of his actions, um, which, as we all know, should be avoided as much as possible. Um, and that whole thing almost seems to be set up so that you are supposed to feel really sorry for Eddie and think that Peter is being um, utterly unreasonable and unfair to insist that he be taught a lesson for his complete manipulation of journalistic ethics. You want to sorry. talk journalistic integrity, Mr. Parker? Well... Yeah, all right. It is a bit hypocritical. You have founded your entire career on a lie. Not technically. You could argue that he has simply withheld certain pieces of information. He's never faked anything. I suppose not. Yeah, he said, I am Peter Parker and I take... And here are some photos of Spider-Man. Yeah, neither of those things are a lie. Those things are sold on the basis of you can catch Spider-Man... In a way that, oh, I suppose, Spider-Man agrees to this. I mean, let's face it, if another photographer... I sp- no, actually, now that you mention seen... it, because I have bitched about this uh, uh, a lot. If if Peter Peter is unable to actually... I don't know, when it... You don't care, do you? <laughs> when it comes down to it, um, he's unable to actually tell the truth regarding uh, the circumstances of his... Um, getting these photos because it would reveal who he actually is. I suppose journalists are unable to reveal their sources if they will be incriminated or something. I think they are in America. They have that protection. But Eddie does cross a line by faking the photograph. And he deserves to lose his job at that point. Well, he didn't deserve it in the first place. Indeed. There's nothing wrong being done to him. It's just the balance is being redressed. Exactly. He shouldn't have got it. The argument of, I'll be ruined, I'll never work in journalism again. Well, you should have bloody thought of that before you faked a photograph and tried to pass it off as your own work. I'm not sure if you're supposed to feel sorry for Eddie. I do know that he behaves like a dick in this film, and Peter behaves like a dick in this film, and Harry behaves like a dick in this film. This is like these three big old dicks slapping around at each other, and it's just... I kind of want to back the hell off from the sausage fest. Cut that one out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. On a side note, because it relates to Eddie slash Venom, when when Peter is thrown out of the jazz club for... Excuse me. Okay, keep the momentum going. On a side note, related to Venom and Eddie, when Peter is thrown out of the jazz club for behaving like a div, he goes straight to the church bell tower. And then the bell starts going off, and it's like, bong, oh my god, the symbiote's trying to get off me. Why was he at the bell tower in the first place? It makes no sense that he was there. What should have happened at some point earlier in the movie is that he should have been passing a bell tower, and the residents of the bell made this suit go, and and then made him go, oh god, okay, right, I'll remember that. 
and then that might come in useful a little bit later. Instead, it works the other way around. He goes to the bell tower with no clue as to uh, what the weakness could be, and it turns out he just happens to have stumbled on the weakness of this symbiote at the exact point he wants to get rid of it, and then later on he remembers that to kill the thing. Well, to get it off Eddie specifically, which it then turns out he might as well not have bothered and just thrown the bomb at Eddie in the first place. That's a fine point. But also the fact that it happens to be the church that Eddie is currently praying for Peter's death in. This is New York. That suggests God does exist, and he's like, oh, oh, you want me to kill someone, do you, Eddie? Well, how about this? Hmm. But this, this being New York, I'm pretty sure they have more than one church. The odds of them both fetching up in exactly the same church at exactly the same moment seems pretty slim. And for Eddie to be standing up staring gormlessly at Peter. But then again, that was in the original comic book. You can't really mess with that. Unless Eddie sees Peter, follows Peter to the church, and tries to see what he's doing up there. But Venom was forced in by Ar- Avi Arad, who uh, had a connection to the comics and... Uh, knew that the fan community wanted Venom. So it wasn't Sam Raimi checking his Twitter feed and going, ah, folks, uh, they're saying they want Venom. He wasn't checking fan mail. He was literally told by Avi Arad, oh, you've got to have Venom in the next movie because all, all of the kids are saying you've got to have Venom. Even though you listen to the masses, that's not how you make a great film. That's how you make a great game of Mad Libs. And in all seriousness, you could have had Venom in this film for like a half second. The whole bell tower scenario when it drips down onto Eddie and then he goes, Nyah! That's as much as you need. That teases the next movie. And in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that is exactly what would happen. They wouldn't force him in and crush him against everybody else. They're more competent now. They're more aware of the big picture and the long game. They plan this stuff out. Marvel knows what they're doing up to 2028. They really do have this stuff down. But instead, no, they bring in Venom and then they dispatch him just as quickly. It's almost like um, Raimi was like, okay, I'll bring in Venom, but then I'll kill him straight away. But it's in kind of a way that it's like, if they really wanted him back, there could have been a tiny drop of the ooze in there somewhere and they could have brought Venom back, maybe the symbiote back, but not Eddie Brock. Oh, and you'd be robbed of such a fine character. Okay, so all the Harry stuff. New Goblin slash Green Goblin 2 slash another name for him that they were pottering around with at this point was Night Surfer. But it doesn't really make sense that Harry would go, I am the Night Surfer. It's it's kind of neat, actually, how he doesn't give himself a name because he doesn't have an agenda beyond killing Spider-Man. He's using the tools of his father's trade to exact revenge. But it's not about assuming a persona aside from just using the tech and... Uh, to a degree, em- to a degree, but not exactly emulating his father. He doesn't put on that mask. Yeah. And or use that glider. Yeah. And the goblin fight when he first turns up, th- th- it's weird because it's like seconds after 
Aunt May's given that uh, deep, uh, sweet-natured speech about how a man needs to put his wife in front of himself. It's it's kind of old-fashioned because it implies that the wife should never have to do the same, um, or at least that bit bit is omitted. Uh, but so uh, it, it's it's sweet-natured nonetheless, and you can't really argue with it. But then within seconds, Peter's pottering along on his fucking moped and then the goblin comes up behind him sweeps him up and is like oh we're doing this now we're doing this now okay let's go and then that leads to the best bit of uh, uh, action in this film and I kind of think it might be for me my favourite bit of Maguire in the trilogy because he's not in the Spider-Man garb but he's totally doing everything that Spider-Man would. He's swinging from the webs, he's using his web shooters, he's, he's using his agility, he's jumping all over the place, and he's properly laying it into Harry once it becomes apparent that Harry is not being mind-controlled or anything, and he really does want to kill Peter. He's giving it back just as hard as he's getting it, and Maguire has a set look of determination about himself. He's also wearing a suit, and it's not like something that his grandma would have dressed him in for Sunday church. It looks like a suit that a man would wear. And for the first time, he's a man. In addition to this, you've got the engagement ring, which is both his link to MJ and Aunt May. So you've got a big symbol of adulthood and responsibility at play in the middle of this big fight. It's one of the best things in the trilogy. This is Peter desperately trying to claw at and hold on to the possibility of being able to be a straight-shooting stand-up guy and a responsible adult and a man and a husband and possibly a father, which would thus allow him to fill the shoes of his own absent father and his father figure of Uncle Ben, whom he's been trying so desperately to live up to for all these years. But the mistakes of his past keep coming back to bite him in the ass. And the... CG that has been ropey as hell throughout the uh, series, although some of the worst stuff also happens in this fight, is actually pretty competent and um, it gives you a kind of a zooming sense of uh, epic combat in midair. And it's it, they don't pull their punches out; they're probably laying into each other. It's uh, it's it's thrilling stuff and instrumental in convincing me that maybe Spider-Man Three is not quite so bad every time I watch it, and then it hits the half hour mark. And I don't really have a major problem with the amnesia, despite it being a trope of um, soap operas, because Harry, when he comes out of his coma, is stripped of all these layers of neurosis, and my father, my father, my father, and all of this shit that's been heaped on top of him, and you actually get to see the guy deep beneath all that, and he's, metaphorically speaking, entirely naked, he's not wearing all of these troubles that he's, he's um, built up around himself for his uh, childhood and teenage years and adult life and all of these masks that he's been forcing onto his face are just off and he it's when he's eating the um, candy floss in the uh, park and he says I'm free as a bird and you actually believe it for a big to begin with I was like hang on he's putting this on this is just a long con but you can see in his eyes he is committed to this um, new optimism I think it does sort of emphasize how much of an impact um, Norman had on mm. his son um, to to a negative point. And the guy's toxic. Yeah, to an extent that Harry didn't even really recognize it. But you can, as you say, you can see how relaxed he seems um, because he's had these uh, cares and woes stripped away and Norman's not around to reinforce them again. Yeah. Up until this point, when he's the stalking presence, he's like watching Peter at the uh, beginning with his eyeglasses, and he's got this sneer of, I shall kill you soon. It's like the Count of Monte Cristo meets Machiavelli. But here's the thing. When Peter realizes that he's a blank slate, 
and that he could technically tell him anything at this stage and he could take responsibility for the situation that has arisen, he doesn't do it. Again, he's given a do-over. He didn't tell Harry before and he just he just held back because he hates conflict and you saw how incredibly poisoned Harry became by this bitterness and resentment and everything to do with his father. Peter is given a golden opportunity to level with his friend at long last and just fill him in and say, look, we've got to have a serious man-to-man talk on this one because I've got to lay some stuff on you you're not going to like at all and I'm trusting you a lot with it, but you've got to know this stuff because I didn't tell you before and we both paid the consequences. But that's what a man would say. And Peter's a boy, still, and he doesn't. He's an idiot. I don't know if it goes any further than that, frankly. Um, what frustrates me about the amnesia, I think, is that when it, when Harry's memory returns, it's like Apropos they... Apropos of nothing. Absolutely. Um, it's like they might not even have... They might as well have not bothered with the amnesia storyline in the first place. It, it becomes an irrelevance at that point. It doesn't matter that Harry went through this phase of, of not remembering what had happened and what he'd done and who he was. All that enables is this um, interesting little loop of wonderfulness in his um, connection with MJ um, and what spirals out of that. One of what I consider to be the best scenes in this mm. when they're uh, when they're dancing in the kitchen. All that gone, he turns up at her apartment and grabs her around the neck and slams her up against a wall. Not half an hour previous, she's put her trust in him. That's never followed up on. No indication that MJ's heart is broken by the fact that here's another man that she tried to have faith in and has once again met her with violence. Cut to the end when Harry's dying, she's acting as though nothing ever happened. The amnesia scenario is there to remind you that Harry's a good person. And it's, one, like I say, one of the clumsiest ways of doing it because effectively it's a giant lie. It takes away all of the stuff that Harry has to deal with and it says, well, how about you deal with nothing for a bit? That's like saying to somebody who has a terrible, terrible voice, if you had a good voice, you'd be an awesome singer. If you weren't who you were, you'd be great. But unfortunately, you are who you are. When Peter is in his black costume and uh, going after Harry, and, and uh, the people have pointed out that Peter behaves sort of like an emo at this point, like he's got this sort of the fringe going down over one side of his face, and that does have hold some water. Uh, I, you'd be hard-pressed to find an emo who behaves quite this abominably. I, I would say, to be honest with you, that people who say that and mean it are people who are dismissive of any uh, emo cultural pursuit as sulky teenager. Because that's what Peter is actually behaving like, a sulky teenager. Like, he, he was a child before, but he's really a child now. Interestingly, because he has a preponderance for wearing black and his hair gets far blacker at that point, I was thinking, Black Peter, where have I heard that before? Oh, yeah, it's in Collateral. Javier Bardem talks about uh, Santa Claus's helper, uh, Pedro Negro, uh, or Black Peter, who is the one who, uh, for all the naughty children, leaves coal in their stocking. So that's who Peter is at this point. He's Pedro Negro, the one who makes all the children cry. Brilliant. <laughs> Of course, Javier Bardem is saying all this to Jamie Foxx, who went on to play Electro. But unfortunately, they go for the redemption through uh, sacrificial... No! 
fool jumping in front of a bullet, or in this case, two big spikes. Because you see, his father was killed on two big spikes. And you see, it's the same thing again. This is how it works, folks. We have great appreciation for entirely accidental symbolism that was entirely unintentional from the creator's point of view. And what we don't like is heavy-handed symbolism that was intentional. We're weird like that. We desire the creators of the art we love to be smarter than us. And and that seems dreadfully forced because it's like, well, this is a trilogy and it's the Harry trilogy. Should we call it the Harry trilogy? And like, you know, you start with Harry and then you finish with Harry and then it's come full circle. Uh huh. Anybody? Oh, that. We'll call that. Sh- fuck it. We'll wrap it. We'll go. Harry could have gone on living. He could easily have gone on living. Oh, he's scarred. Yeah. And that actually possibly means that uh, he'd start thinking outside his incredibly pretty face and outside of his, you know, having... He even says to um, Bernard, I've seen things in this house I've never spoken of. Do I have any girlfriends? Plural. Not do I have a girlfriend, like that's the uh, the average, but you know, do I have many girls on the go at this point? Well, you know what? Um, maybe Harry could deal with this um, uh, scarred face. Maybe Harry could, in fact, use his enormous amounts of money for good. Maybe he could, in fact, sponsor Spider-Man. Because think about it. On the one hand, you've got Peter Parker, who is trying desperately to juggle everything so that he can have enough money to be able to stay alive and survive in the most expensive city on Earth apart from Tokyo. And on the other, you've got a man with more money than he knows what to do with. He could buy precious trillium all day long and still not go broke. And nothing to really do with his life and no good to really uh, achieve. So you get these two hands and you can't really see me right now, but I'm knitting my fingers together. Huh? Basically, um... Uh, the idea of, of Harry becomes kind of Peter's benefactor. He's uh, the person who helps him build all these gadgets and occasionally provides a bit of backup. But that also allows him to grow as a character and to, to be someone beyond just, I'm angry at my father and I love my father and I hate Spider-Man, which is what, mostly what his arc is throughout the fucking trilogy. And after everything that we've said there, I kind of wanted to see more Harry because James Franco is one of the best things in this. The bit where he's messing with Peter's head and uh, he, he uh, sends Peter away in the uh, cafe and then uh, the, the girl asks if, uh, how the uh, pie is and he goes, so good, in this kind of like, like, like uh, grinning, like eyebrow-raising, Dr. Evil kind of way, but he's just having so much fun with it that he, he's much more watchable than, um, say, Venom. <laughs> Or Spider-Man, frankly. Or Spider-Man, yeah. It is quite fun to see how uh, Franco improves over the course of the trilogy, actually. Because he's, he's okay in the first one, but he's not, he doesn't really have much to do. He's and glum. he is a bit wooden. Um, but he's, he gets so much better by the end of this. Oh, yeah. Hello, I'm Gwen Stacy. Uh, this is Mary Jane Watson. Oh, oh, it's so nice to finally meet you. Pete talks about you all the time. Oh. Gwen is my lab partner in Dr. Connor's class. Pete's something of a genius. I'd be completely lost without him. Which actually reminds me, Pete, if you've got a picture of my kiss with Spider-Man, could you bring it to class? 
I really loved it. <laughs> For my portfolio. After all, who gets kissed by Spider-Man, right? <laughs> I can't imagine. Awkward! Well, it was lovely to meet you. Good night. Good night. And then there's Peter and MJ's communication problems. What's the... I mean, we've gone on and on and on about them. Is there anything more to say? I think there is with this one, actually, because a lot of the, um, air quotes, discussions um, that they end up having through the course of this film, they do seem set up in such a way that you're supposed to empathise with MJ and... It's supposed to be kind of, well, you can see that Peter is being a completely self-absorbed dick at this point, And therefore, it's entirely understandable uh, that MJ is frustrated with him. And therefore, it's entirely understandable that she is driven into the arms of Harry. Um, because that all has to be completely understandable because you have to be able to um, forgive her for it all at the end uh, when they get back together again. But what surprised me was I actually liked MJ more in this one and I was not expecting that. Mm -hmm. um, I liked Kirsten Dunst's performance more in this one than the other two. And I was definitely not expecting that. She still has her ridiculous scream fest. Um, she still has the fact that um, uh, a major part of her uh, character development is to get kidnapped. Um, but she actually has other things to do in this. T things happen to her when Peter's not around. See, that was what I found most frustrating about MJ through the first two movies. There was never anything for me that said these people have any interaction with each, with each other that we don't see. I don't understand how this relationship could develop when all they've exchanged is the dozen sentences that they've I've seen them exchange on screen there was not no more depth to the relationship nothing going on that wasn't actually filmed this one there did actually you know other things are happening you can see that she goes from being um an actress on stage to losing her role to whatever the steps are that are going on behind the scenes that wind up with her becoming a jazz club waitress um she's got uh, clearly uh, issues with depression that are going on completely understandable given what she's been through um but again, it comes down to this lack of communication or lack of ability or inclination to communicate with each other in an adult way. She hits out at Peter by saying things like, um, well, you should know how I feel. How? How should he know how you feel? If one of his spider powers is not psychic ability. If you don't tell him how you feel, how is he supposed to know? And yes, in that particular conversation, she does follow that up with... Um, you know, I read that review and it's like those words come straight from my father. And that was really nice. But the fact that she 
preceded that by staring at him blankly, waiting for him to come up with some magic words that would say, yes, MJ, without you having to say a word, I understand everything that you're going through, but I'm not going to say anything as crass as I understand what you're going through, because obviously I don't. And it's not so much that she seems to expect too much of him as she seems to expect too much full stop she Mm. needs so much in the way of validation and encouragement and and one of the first things she says in this film was tell me again was i good he's already told her that she was great otherwise she wouldn't say tell me again how much feedback does this woman need to have and i get that that's part of her her character flaw but you have to provide something else for it to be worth her getting over that my theory is that she's never felt more wanted and more real and more alive than when she's being kidnapped and hanging from a building screaming true but all of that of course is is tied in with spider-man who she is now having to compete with for attention from the public i really liked actually your theory about why she gravitates to harry Mm -hmm. oh yeah no yeah okay My theory was she goes back to a part of her old life that she's familiar with and tries to make that work. The idea being if she meets someone new and tries to make that work, she'll always be waiting for the other shoe to drop and waiting for her to fuck this one up. If she can fix something that she's previously been associated with and has previously been in her life and hasn't been able to work before, but now it can... It's almost like all of the years of her life have not been for nothing. And of all that time she's spent trying to cultivate relationships in whatever way she is her own, um, one of them worked. Because as far as she's concerned, she fucked up her relationship with her parents. She never mentions her mother. That's if her mother's there at all. She never mentions her relationship with her mother. Um, maybe her mother's dead. Um, she, uh, no, I think she does say her, her poor sick mother got out of her bed to come and see her play or something. Oh, there we go, right. So, yeah, she's got uh, neglectful, abusive parents. Obviously, things didn't work out with her boyfriend in high school, Flash. She had other friends, but obviously they were of a very shallow type who didn't really stick around. Although Butterfly was pretty good last uh, episode, as we discussed. Not seen in this one. Not seen in this one. So, yeah, MJ seems like someone who doesn't have any friends and badly needs one. And Harry behaves exactly like a friend should except for the whole coming on to her at some point no she kissed him oh she kissed oh jesus right that's why she apologizes okay and harry behaves exactly as a friend should so it's almost like this is the last remnant of her life that she's familiar with and she has if not so much any control with but any sense of the younger self and and who she was before because who she is right now she doesn't know now i could be reading too much into that Probably am. But it does add extra dimensions to her character, which weren't there before. Desperately needed extra dimensions. And I think there's there's also an element of her, um, her being drawn to Harry because being the centre of somebody's focus, that's something that she's been missing for a long time and and has never really had by the sounds of things i mean 
Peter's habit of having the police scanner on in his apartment all the time, it hit me that that's basically the equivalent of trying to have a conversation with somebody who's constantly looking at Twitter on their phone. Yeah. You know how that feels, don't you, sweetheart? Yes. (laughs) But, you know, he's always, like you said, he's always on. He's always Spider-Man. There's always this other thing that she has to share his attention with. And in that brief moment with Harry, she knew what it was like, again, to be completely concentrated on by somebody else. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be honest. I have been there. I have been in a relationship where I felt that it just it wasn't working and the the connection was slowly melting away and i met somebody who you know for a what at the time was i thought a fairly brief period of suddenly i have somebody's attention it is a very very powerful feeling and it has a way of when you're gripped by a, a, a misery and a depression, it has a way of making you feel alive again for a little bit, warm again for a little bit. And when you're at a period where you didn't think you were ever going to feel warm and alive again, my God, do you grab that and hang on to it. You've already talked about the honesty on the bridge scene, haven't you? Briefly, yeah. I mean, that... Basically, yeah, if you just remove the fact that this is all some ridiculous engineered plot by Harry because he thinks that uh, if MJ breaks up with Peter, it'll devastate him and make him, I don't know, easier to kill. Um, just just have that be MJ meeting Peter on a bridge and explaining to him why she can't be with him anymore. Mm. It works perfectly from that perspective. You, you get the, the scene where she has this connection with Harry. She realizes that that means something to her. Take out the bit where Harry grabs her by the throat and slams her up against the wall. Then have her meet up with Peter and explain to him that, that there's somebody else and that that somebody else is, is giving her something that she very, very sorely needs at that point and have Peter be devastated and then move on. Because that actually does work as part of the plot. And like, like I said, the actual knock-on effect of that being Peter dancing like a div, it, it, that doesn't actually scan. But it doesn't scan whether it's Harry's plot or not. So you may as well have it be real. I can't do this. It's over. No. Please. Please don't say that. I know I've been selfish, but... I can do better. I can change. It's not that simple. We love each other. I love you. We have problems. When people have problems, they, they work it out. They talk to each other. Because ultimately, if it comes from a place of truth, that's far more impactful than Harry's machinations. Because their relationship, let's face it, doesn't work. Both of them are in need of an adult, someone to bear their weight. Neither of them are able to bear the weight of the other. It doesn't work. Neither of them are prepared to be that adult. At the very, very end, it seems almost like at least Peter can be. I think both of them look much more grown up in that final scene than they ever have. It could simply just be the fact that Harry dies smacks some sense into them. Quite possibly. In fact, oh my God, I've just read, you know, we were talking about what could you scissor out of this and actually make it still work? Mm -hmm. 
those scenes. The bit where Harry gets his memory back because he sees the picture of his father, Mm -hmm. the bit where Harry goes round to MJ's apartment and grabs her, Mm -hmm. um, and the bit where Peter goes to Harry and says... um, yeah, basically and goes to Harry and says, and then, I, I need your help yeah. to save MJ. And Harry says, no, sod off. And then goes and turns up at the um, at the scene anyway. If you just have Peter deciding that he's got to remind Harry that he is the Green Goblin because he needs his help, that works. talk about peter now let's keep it short because i've complained about him (laughs) bitterly before we have one thing that i did point out is that an hour 10 in the black suit turns peter into a living shit it really does um and that's when it they really start to play it for comedy grins but it's not funny in fact it kind of made me uh when i was at the uh, cinema everyone else was sort of chuckling along and i was sort of just looking around going seriously that's what this has become but it preys on the, the rotten little core of you. But that implies that that was in there all along. And there's this horrible person deep inside Peter. The black suit story is a really tough balance. They did it right in Spectacular Spider-Man. We'll talk about that when we discuss Spectacular Spider-Man because that's worth doing a whole show on. Uh, but it requires you to take elements of Peter that you can kind of actually see and sympathize with. It's just that he takes them a bit too far. And you think, well, he probably wouldn't have taken them a bit too far were it not for the uh, black costume. There always, to do it right, there needs to be a sense of uncertainty. There's no sense of uncertainty with the black costume. It is like, no, 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 this is bad, as bad as bad can be. It's in a black and white world. And that's the thing. It should really be shades of grey if you're going to do the black suit properly these days. And the problem with doing it totally black and white as well is Is that that you draw complete black out of an otherwise mostly white character. And also, if you're going to step over the line and have some of that blackness portrayed as comical, then you have to think really carefully about what you're showing and what you consider to be funny. I mean, there's... It is suggested that the symbiote is drawn to Peter because of the the anger and the desire for revenge that's been um, elicited from him because of finding out about the fact that Ben's yeah. real killer is still at large. It doesn't latch on to him until he's suddenly until gripped that happens, with a fury. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so the implication is that the, the 
the black costume is a reflection of his darkest fear, his regret, his anger. Now, if you're going to pull all that out of a character and say this was all in him in the it, it, all along, it's just that this costume has uh, drawn it from him and, and caused him to project that. You can't make that funny. Not if you want that character to still have anything left when you take all that away. They, it seemed like they were nervous and they didn't know quite how to, uh, to play it, so they played it for grins because they didn't want people to get too scared of how, what Peter was becoming. So uh, rather than Peter becoming a monster, he just became a douchebag. Yeah, and, and rather than having um, him look exactly the same... And it only being clear through his expression and his eyes um, and possibly when he looks in the mirror, seeing something that seems a little bit unfamiliar to him in the same way that that Norman did in the first film and that Harry did in the second. Uh, instead, how do we know he's evil? Well, he has a ridiculous fringe and he appears to have found some eyeliner on the way home. In the in Spectacular, again, I can't not compare it because this is how you do it right. Uh, he wore a black T-shirt, whereas previously before he had been uh, wearing his sort of uh, long-sleeve white tee and a blue T-shirt over the top of that. And he's always looked like a sort of a, a, a fun kid. Suddenly in the black T-shirt, he looked much more assertive, much more sure of himself. He stands up straighter and his expression is more stern and set. But this is in a very stylized cartoon where they're moving in broad brush strokes. And they get that across in a relatively subtle way without him having to behave like this fiasco that he becomes. It's really sad to watch this part of the film because that's that reduces the entire trilogy to, to this joke. And it's really hard to go back from that. And you completely lose the idea that he um, is reluctant to give up the symbiote because... Um, I was going to say it allows him to live without boundaries, but that's not quite what it is either. That's kind of what they were driving at with Eddie's appeal towards it, I think. But in Peter, it's just it just gives him license to act like an idiot. And frankly, he's been acting like an idiot for most of this series anyway. Now he's just acting like an idiot who no longer has to feel guilty about the fact that he's making everybody around him feel bad. It was a good story. Okay, well, I was going to ask you if you thought Tobey Maguire as the hitchhiker was was a good hitchhiker. As was he like the guy you picked up, or that kid is a stupid, like a, a wax doll of some kind. That's Tobey Maguire. Who, who's that? He's an actor who's now the, a huge actor. He's he was Spider Man recently. God, I can see why. I guess <laughs> he's a perfect rep- representative of the breed. Look at that freak. But he, he did a good job as being a, s- a scary hitchhiker in a way. He looks like a wax doll, and they're saving money on, you know, putting a rubber doll in the car, waxing it up in the sun. And what do you think Ralph's influence on the visuals of the movie? For instance, that's an example that we, we, we made the hitchhiker look kind of like Ralph's drawing. And that is a living goddamn creep, a jackass. Hunter, how did you like his T-shirt that's Ralph's drawing? You see Ralph's drawing of Mickey Mouse on his T-shirt? What, well, they got a nice Disney commercial in there? With... <laughs> Looks like a 90-year-old man. Well, Hunter, you have it on pause. That's why, in a very odd moment. <laughs> well, life is full of odd moments. You never know when you're going to get defined. Come on, scoot over, you fat bastard. 
And interestingly, because we've gone back and forth all over the film, this is how we're going to end it. Uh, we could talk about the jazz club. It makes me sick to my stomach seeing him do that little plinky-plunky uh, piano thing and then strutting his stuff on the dance floor. It, 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 uh, this was the culmination of me really thinking, you were wrong for this role, Tobey Maguire. Um, but at the very, very end, which ends at this exact same place, when he comes back in and almost wordlessly... I don't, does he actually speak to her? Um she finishes her song. She yeah, that, that's a, it's a neat way of doing it. Then she, she leaves off her song halfway through. They embrace and dance very slowly, and it's a, a tender moment. And it brings you back to what he said at the very beginning in the very first film. This story is about a girl, and as it turns out, it was. And it's making good on that promise. I think in a way that almost seems uh, accidental. But if it was intentional, then bravo, because they could have ended this in the same obnoxious way. Like if they'd, First two times it's joyful, but if they'd ended on him swinging through the city, it would have just been, oh, fuck off. After all that, fuck off. But they don't. It's a personal, quiet moment. And it's a sad moment, because we're never going to return to this world. And it's a relief of a moment, because we're never going to return to this world. I've actually written at the end of my notes, uh, is this an opportunity for a more adult relationship in which they actually talk to each other? We'll never know. Yeah. Peter, what is it? It's MJ. I'm going to ask her to marry me. Oh, Peter! Oh. oh! The day your Uncle Ben asked me to marry him, we were so scared and excited... And very young. And I loved him so fiercely. And you said yes, right? No. I wanted to say yes, but I said no. I wasn't ready. Neither was he. So we took our time. Looked forward to it. Didn't want to run into something with nothing to count on but love. A man has to be understanding and put his wife before himself. Can you do that, Peter? Yeah, I think I can. And then you have my blessing. Oh, I hope you've considered a proper proposal. Your uncle had it all planned. He took me to the beach one Sunday. Oh, he was a knockout in his bathing suit. <laughs> and I, I didn't look too bad myself. We were very good swimmers. And it was a beautiful day, and he said, let's swim to the island. And at the island, we found a perfect spot by an old tree. And we lay down and looked up at the sky. And then he said, close your eyes, May. And I did. And then he said, open. And I did. And he was holding this ring. Dazzling in front of me. I thought it was the sun. We'd be married 50 years. Come August. If... So, I hope you'll make it very special for Mary Jane. Do something she'll never forget. Double time. And that is a living goddamn 
creep, a jackass. Give her this. Go on. Take it. I think the only other thing that I, I wanted, particularly wanted to say about the end um, was that um, I actually got a little bit frustrated by uh, Peter's speech about choice um, and about the fact that you always have the choice to do the right thing and um, all the only difference between us is which choice you make. And uh, that's which... bullshit. That's a black and white world again. Exactly. Some and also, choices really that, that you can't see all outcomes. Also, it's very much from the perspective of an extremely privileged young man who's had choice all his life. I mean, this was one of the things that I, I commented on about his complete inability to understand where MJ is coming from in, in the whole needing validation and, um, you know, needing him to listen to her and, uh, and how frustrated she is by the fact that she's got these bad reviews and she's being told that she's worthless and she's useless and she's nothing. And he completely doesn't understand any of that. And although it frustrates me the way, um, she, she puts it across, he he doesn't understand how she feels and he cannot understand how she feels because one of the key things about Peter is he's always been loved by someone. He hasn't always been loved by everyone and there's been times when the city has hated Spider-Man and, and, you know, he has to deal with that. But as Peter, he's had May and Ben his whole life adoring him, telling him everything he does is wonderful. And right up until the end, he has that. And somebody who has that that positive reinforcement, it's like we, we were talking about this with the Harry Potter films and with the fact that, um, that Harry had the protection of um, his parents' love and that would forever give him a grounding to be able to do the right thing and to be brave and to be... Um, uh, to be able to uh, confront evil and challenge people who were hurting his friends and, and the people that he cared about. If you've not had that, you're not on the same footing. You don't necessarily have those choices. And it certainly isn't as simple as, I'm going to decide to do the easy thing today. So, yeah, I, I didn't like that speech much. It was a bit simplified. Anything else? I did wonder, actually, if, um, and this, this really was just an idle wondering, um, if MJ was supposed to be some sort of allegory for um, girls who don't appreciate superhero comics and superhero films and <laughs> stories, that it's like, but, but the heroes save you all the time. How can you not think they're wonderful? Oh, did you notice that they had to do the torn mask thing again at the end? Like they have no faith in Tobey Maguire's ability to emote with a, with a mask on. I have news for you. He wore no mask for the vast majority of this film, and he couldn't emote then. <laughs> I think we're done. I think we are, and I've just realised how short this one is. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this one. We'll be back next week with the reboot of Spider-Man, The Amazing Spider-Man, where we'll talk about the constant state of arrested development for a certain Mr. Peter Parker. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Neural, Neural Handshake, Handshake Complete. complete.
Um, there are shithead boys in Peter's class. It wasn't really worth discussing, but um, when he's doing Doc Connor's advanced chemistry in college, um, there are people like shining mirrors in his face and spitballs, and it's like, d- dude, seriously? Your parents are spending $20,000 per year to keep you in this expensive daycare center. Would you please shut the fuck up and learn physics? I can, I can buy, he's like, oh, I'm learning in school. Then it's like, you go to college and it's exactly the same. Now, I can tell you right now, that's not the case in such a way that it needs to be highlighted in this movie. In fact, if you look at it in Spider-Man 2, everyone seems to have their head down. It's Peter who's the one who's not focusing. But again, maybe they were worried that they couldn't, uh, the kids couldn't relate to it. So, when he's kissing Gwen Stacy upside down, there's that little kid who may as well have key demographic on his t-shirt going, No, Spider-Man! And from out of the mouths of babes. Mm, indeed. Bruce Campbell returns as Inspector Clouseau, it would appear, in this one. Uh, <laughs> my favourite line is where after, uh, where he says, I am French. In this kind of like, don't say I'm not, because I am. Mm. Well, it's it's really hard not to laugh at that. I was sure when I saw, saw this again that it was just going to be tiresome, but it actually gets better because it's an actual genuine laugh in the middle of an otherwise miserable movie. We get two more of those awful reprises of the Spider-Man, Spider-Man. There's the brass band version when they're in the park. And there's the uh, disco funk version, James Brown-style version, when he's strutting along the street. At that point, that may just have been when I just may have justifiably stood up in the cinema and shouted, Enough with the fucking Spider-Man theme. J. Jonah Jameson acts for six seconds in this film. He's a comedy prop for the rest of it. Um, he, he seems to have been robbed of most of his fire from the first two. He's not really in control. Um, Eddie smarms all over him, and Peter actually straight up defies him in a way that would make any self-respecting JJ you know, just roast Peter on the spot. But no, he acts for six seconds when he finds out they've got a printer attraction. That's the first time JJ actually becomes a character who has to deal with actual real world scenarios and then it's snatched away before we can really think about it that's the first time he's an actual editor and you feel like he, he's worthy of his paycheck and then he does that camera stick at the end where he buys a camera from a kid and then pops the back open if there was an actual film in the camera he'd have destroyed the film by doing that he's only opening it to show us the audience there is no film however the average kid watching it these days would ask, where's the memory card? That's totally, like, you'd have to really get a kid to understand that cameras used to have this thing called film. Uh, Flash Thompson is seen briefly at the funeral behind MJ, which is a nice little callback. I got the actor in for just an afternoon, it would appear. And Stan Lee does his proper cameo, and that's a really gratifying moment. And it was almost like, look, if I don't do any more of these, this was the best one. And then he went on to do loads more. But that's that's what a Stan Lee cameo really should be. You know, I guess one person can make a difference. Enough said. <laughs> 